Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast, a convenient place where you can stay up to date on what's popular in the swine industry. By listening to Popular Pig, you will receive invaluable information on the latest trends, news, and research from various experts who guide the global pork industry. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com. Popular Pig is also made possible by Johnsonville Foods, Swine Robotics, SwineWeb.com, and Innovative Heating, the manufacturers of Hog Hearth. Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast. My name is Matthew Rota, your host for today's episode. Today, we're going to talk about the stories we tell ourselves with Vance Crow. How are you doing today, Vance? I'm great. How are you, Matt? Doing great. It's neat to interview a fellow podcaster. You've done a lot of really great stories with individuals throughout our industry and uh, really look forward to talking through a keynote follow-up that you did in Oklahoma City for the Oklahoma City Pork Producers or Oklahoma Pork Producers and uh, really appreciate your time. To start out, would you mind introducing yourself a little bit about your background and how you even got involved with doing an interview or a keynote at the Oklahoma Pork Producers um, event? So I run a communications company called Articulate Ventures in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, but the way that I got into agriculture was not through that business. I actually uh, was running my company for a few years when Monsanto, in the middle of all of their chaos around GMOs and um, pesticides being viewed by the public as poison, they hired me. Actually, they came to me and said, would you be interested in this job? I had no interest in the job at all because I was like many other people out there that thought Monsanto was as evil as like North Korea. But I thought, well, who doesn't want to take a trip in to see North Korea if they're going to give you one? And so I took the interview and had my mind blown. And when that happened, I began to realize that agriculture is in a really precarious position. Ever since the advent of ovens, when people could bake bread, all of a sudden you have people living in the city that are waiting for food to come to them and people in the countryside that are producing that food. And there has always been a divide there. So when Bear bought Monsanto, I had the choice to either stay there but uh, move into a different part of the business or go out and actually live what I believe, which is it is of critical importance for agriculture to be able to explain who they are and why they do what they do um, for the future of human civilization. And so I, um, I really believe that. And I left and um, restarted my company. And now that's what I do full time. I do communications work and I get invited around the country. And when COVID isn't going on around the world to give uh, talks that help people think about their industry in new and different ways. That's awesome. It's it's cool too how you also became more involved with our industry through COVID because you had some pretty interesting interviews and one that actually got a lot of notoriety with with Dr. Brad Frecking. That was a wild interview. You know, the pig production as as everybody listening to this knows, but I didn't know is if something happens to pig production, it is felt in the grocery stores immediately. But that doesn't mean that the people living in the cities have any concept as to why it's happening. They just see all of a sudden they don't have pork chops or you know tenderloins just aren't there. And, um, and so when Brad Frecking put his hand up and said he would be willing to talk on my podcast, when COVID hit... I decided I was going to do podcasts all the time as much as I could and talk to as many interesting people that had perspectives that were outside 
of the mainstream narrative. And so Brad's interview where he was talking about, look, it's 48 hours between when you slaughter that pig and when it shows up at the grocery store. There's no giant warehouse of frozen pork we can go pull out. That shocked me and it shocked, I think, tens of thousands of people living in the cities wondering what was going on with coronavirus and uh, having somebody like Brad sit in and, and give us a different perspective was, uh, was an honor. It was a great experience. So what made you think about the title, Stories That We Tell Ourselves? So I was contacted by the uh, Oklahoma Pork Congress, and I um, I don't actually know that much about pork, but they were so intrigued by not just the podcast that I did with Brad, but other podcasts around there that they said, we know you have this experience talking. Do you have anything you'd like to come talk with us about? We have this Congress that we really try really hard to make it so that it's not just the owners of the business or people in management that are there. We want to have interns there. We want to have people working on the floor. We want to have people working throughout the uh, entire industry there. And so we need a talk that's going to reach to all of them. And so I took a couple of days to be like, let me think about this. Because people approach me. I write almost every talk to be unique to whatever group I'm with. And so I started doing research on pigs in general because I just didn't know anything about it. And two days in, I came to realize that the the world of pigs and pork and history and how it became such a prominent part of our society is not known by anybody. People living in the city, but also likely not the people that are in pork production. And if you're going to be in this field that's so different, that keeps you away from the rest of society, I mean, it's pretty obvious people kind of turn their nose up at like, oh, a pig farmer, right? But pig farmers love what they do. People that are in the industry love and know how sophisticated and beautiful it is. So I thought, what what would be more fun than showing the long-term history, the long arc of how pigs uh, became something that was domesticated, how we could uh, handle them, the problems that happened along the way. And my guess was that it would be entertaining. And my sense was after the talk that people really enjoyed having a very different look at where pigs come from and how they fit into our culture. So tell us, what were some of the most interesting historical aspects of pigs and pork that you found that that really, really interested you? I think the one that is uh, the most interesting is probably the very, very first one, which is When you think about how we domesticate an animal, what does it mean to domesticate it? Well, it means you can keep it in a pen and you don't have to worry about it killing you right away. Like, you know, bison, for example, are really difficult to domesticate because they can go through even a steel pen, right? So how can can you keep it in a pen and can you get it to breed in captivity? You know, there are some animals you can keep them in a pen, but it makes them feel like they're jailed and they just don't do it. So if we go back and look at the history of animal domestication... The first animals to be domesticated were dogs about 15,000 years ago. And then you had another about 5,000 years between dogs being domesticated and cows being domesticated. And then it was another about 1,500 years between when cows were domesticated, and they were domesticated in two places, um, to where pigs were domesticated. And the craziest thing about pig domestication is it happened probably, we can prove, in eight different places. And it is likely that people domesticated a pig. They were able to keep it in that pen and they were able to get it to breed. 
but then they lost to the technology because pigs are so clever at getting out. And when they do get out, it only takes about two generations for them to go completely feral. And so the, the idea is that humans, probably in China, somewhere in Southeast Asia, were domesticating pigs, but every so often they would lose that technology. The grandchildren couldn't keep the pigs in. They would have to start all over. And that's why it took so much longer to domesticate pigs than it did to domesticate things like cows and dogs. And yeah, when you lose your offspring and your genetic line is now disrupted, there was no companies you could go to to say, hey, could I buy some more prime pigs to use no you really had to start from scratch go catch some more feral hogs and then work with feral hogs until they were domesticated and then restart the whole process which is probably pretty lengthy yeah and i mean just think about how absolutely overwhelming it would be because it's not like you just like go out and find the pig out there you're talking about wild boars that will gore you to death and uh that that have um that are that are absolutely insane and i think the reason this is such a good story is because all of those genetics are still in pigs today 9000 years later and i think only people that have worked closely with pigs know how clever they are how uh, brutal they can be and how determined they are to at all times get out of their cages if at all possible yeah, I think one other thing you talked about in the, the lineage of that, and I hope I'm not skipping anything here, was also the religious aspects of it within the Mediterranean uh, Peninsula and how probably most people on here are aware of how in the Old Testament it clearly says that, that pork is not an animal that you're supposed to eat. And then the New Testament came out and it created a new covenant and now all of a sudden pork's okay. But then you have this subsect of the population in the world who aren't going to eat pork. So understanding your audience and your consumer base and I'm sure that was kind of interesting, too, if you hadn't heard about that with the split hooves and everything. Yeah, I mean, the fascinating part is to go look up in the Old Testament, what is the edict that it was actually made? And the, and the way it's written is kind of a funny one, because it says, you can eat all mammals that are all animals that are on the on the earth, that, um, but they need to chew cud and they have to have a divided hoof. And so then if you're looking in Leviticus it, it goes through and it gives some examples. It says the cow uh, 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 chews its cud and has a divided hoof. You can eat that. The camel, however, um, chews its uh, cud but uh, doesn't have a divided hoof. It has a hoof that looks a lot more like um, like a, a – I don't even know. I, I'm, it, it's kind of weird. Go look up a tam camel toe and you get to see it. You're not allowed to eat camels. Then they go on to say rabbits – um, a chew cud, but don't have a divided hoof. And, and the, one of the things that I found interesting, you're like, wait a second, chew cud, this can't be right. And when you go to look into the details behind, um, you know, why did they think that, that rabbits chew cud, you see them doing that little like uh, chewing motion where they're like licking their tongue. And like well, there have been their nose. Yeah, there are entire books written by rabbis about like explaining why that is considered chewing its cud. Um, and then they go on to the pig and they say, well, the pig has a divided hoof, but it doesn't chew cud. And so you can't eat that. And that edict is uh, the one that kept Jewish people from, from eating pigs. And we all know that Muslims are also not allowed to eat pigs. But when you think about the fact that pig meat is the most eaten meat in the entire world, 
it's amazing that you have actual religions that say one of the ways that you can prove you are a part of us is by not having this meat, which everybody else realizes is really, really good. And there's something kind of um, powerful about asking people to give up bacon in order to be a part of your religion. And And I think that that's an interesting thing that Christians ended up, you know, embracing pigs, and it's part of the reason why we have Easter um, hams and Christmas hams is because uh, not necessarily that they're celebrating the fact that they can eat pigs, but if you're going to eat a meat on one of your great holidays, it's not a mistake that uh, that it's pork. Yeah, it's crazy too. I have uh, people I know that are that are vegans, and they're like, I have one cheat item: <laughs> bacon. <laughs> they're willing to cheat for bacon. So that's pretty great. And then as you as you move forward with some of this, and, and again, there might be some middle ground, but you also talked about like the Razorbacks, didn't you? Well, yeah. I mean, that is such a, a fascinating story, right? We know about Columbus coming to the shores of America, and there's all this kind of um, you know mythology around that. But what most people don't know is that it was DeSoto that actually found really some of the major parts of our country. So DeSoto was in Cuba. He was the governor of Cuba. And the king, King Charles of Spain, said, hey, since Cuba's pretty much under control, I want you to go and colonize all of the Americas, and I'll give you four years to do it. So they didn't know. They didn't have giant maps. They didn't even know what was out there. They They weren't even certain it wasn't just a really large island. So DeSoto takes 13 pigs. And he goes over to Florida. Now, he has read um, of some other accounts where people have said that around the Florida-Georgia line, Georgia becomes all of a desert. So you need to be prepared for this. So while he's traveling with his 600 soldiers from the, the base of Florida all the way up to the Florida-Georgia line, he breeds out from those 13 pregnant sows 300 pigs. So he gets up to Georgia and he suddenly finds out, wait a second, it's not a desert. We've got a huge plethora of pork, but winter is coming and it'd be good if we had some friends. So what he decided to do in order to make friends was with the native people. He invites a bunch of their chiefs of these different tribes that were all around and he slaughters some pigs and gives it to them. Now, for us, like we think, okay, it'd be great to have a slaughtered pig. We'd probably really enjoy that. But imagine... If for several hundred, if not several thousand years, all of the generations that anybody that even knows anything about your tribe's past has never had a domesticated animal. They have never tasted a fatted pig because there were no pigs domesticated in the, in the North America at that time. And so he slaughters these pigs and he feeds it to them. And they love it. So he assumes that they're going to be good friends. They're going to want to share with him. But a bunch of these guys go back to their tribes and they decide they love it so much that they want to go back and get more. And the way they're going to do it is they're going to take them. And so they start trying to steal pigs. There's some battles. There's even like some some writings that suggest there was a murder around this. And so DeSoto says, oh, no, this is all wrong. This is not working. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give some pigs to these uh, to these native people that are here, and then we can be friends. But just like we said at the beginning when we were talking about domestication, if you don't have a long culture of keeping pigs in a pen, they get out. So he gives them these pigs, and within a few days, few weeks, they are out and they are running around, and DeSoto doesn't think anything of it. Then he spends the next three years moving from Georgia all the way across the Mississippi, and he gets into Arkansas. And at this point, he gets really sick, so he's not going out on adventures, but his men keep coming back and saying, 
oh my gosh, you are not going to believe the devil pigs they have here. They're absolutely insane. They've got these huge tusks. They rut through everything. They destroy everything. And they've got uh, fur on the top of their backs that is so sharp, it's actually a razor. And so these myths came up. And it turns out later they discovered that these were not wild hogs from North America. They were the hogs that had gotten away from DeSoto and they had beaten him across the Mississippi River. And that is where the Razorbacks of Arkansas came from. The Razorbacks that are still part of the feral hog population that's there today, which is probably DeSoto's most enduring legacy. That's crazy. It's 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 crazy to think about some of the problems we face today with feral hogs. You go all the way back to a gift to the Native Americans, and it's like <laughs> this is it happens over and over and over again with hogs. And you know we could tell dozens and dozens of stories where um, you know hogs just got into trouble, and they had I think a much 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 larger impact on our society than most people realize because you know now pig farming is done away it's done tucked away we have all these biosecurity measures people have this uh, you know not in my backyard so they want to keep the smells far away so we have bacon and we have ham in our stores but we have no idea what a fundamental and crucial role this played in western society all the way back to greek and roman society all the way up until the the problems we're dealing with with feral hogs right now it's a major influencer over our culture. And not only do the people not know, but the people w- living and working every day within pig farming don't know because it's one of those things that just doesn't come up in casual conversation very often. Absolutely. So what can we take from these few stories, the stories that you have brought to us and the way they're laid out because they're very interesting. They're fascinating. They're captivating. And what can producers do to tell their story? Or how can the industry look back and say, what should we share? What great stories do we have? And how can we make them a monumental piece of history, especially with agriculture? I think the most important thing that anybody in agriculture that wants to advocate, that wants to be able to make sure that their point of view about the value of the products that they offer, whether this is pig farming or raising corn or wheat or anything, what you have to do is explore these kinds of stories, listen to them, find out which stories you think are particularly funny or particularly captivating, and then start telling them. And the first couple of times you tell a story, like the first time I ever told those stories on the, on the stage at the Oklahoma Port Congress, they go okay. But the more times you tell a story, the better you get at it, the better you get at delivering that punchline, the better you get at figuring out, hey, did I go on too long about that part? Did I get boring? The better you become at any one story that you love, people can feel that when you tell it to them. They can say, oh, man, every time Matt brings up the story about uh, you know, where Wall Street came from or the Trojan pigs of Greece, right? he just lights up. And then that gives them a new way to understand what you care about. And so when they have questions or when they have concerns, they know and they have experienced with you the the joy of talking about your industry on a deep level where you're not trying to convince them of anything. You're not trying to shove down, hey, this is safe and let me tell you about the protocols and let me tell you about the testing we did for these things. Um, which is something that I was really familiar with when when working at Monsanto. And I've really come to the deep conclusion that finding stories you love to tell about your industry is what will make you a way more persuasive um, 
advocate for your industry. And so find the ones you like and practice them. And uh, you, you watch that people will want to ask you questions about your field long after your stories are done. One thing I love about this and is, is probably pretty interesting is that I think it could be very easy for a producer or people within the industry to put, their, put themselves in the shoes of a consumer because we're selling them pork. And when we're driving down the, the features, right, like the biosecurity and the antibiotic free, all of that, and how we do it, what it to do, it's really no different than a salesperson person walking right up to them and instead of introducing themselves, sharing their passions for what they're, what they're solving. It's just, hey, I got this bin. It's going to feed your pigs better. You should buy it. There's nothing else better. It's like, okay, this get away. I don't want to talk to you. And you don't want to talk to people who are just cramming something down. It's how can we explore our passions together and, and, and use that as a foundation to getting that question of tell me more. What That's do you do? A, that, that is exactly right. And you know, the I think Monsanto, if there was going to be one criticism that they should take on, I don't think all of the problems that people had with GMOs and pesticide were actually Monsanto's fault. They made some missteps. But one of their biggest missteps was saying, hey, if we just tell them about the science harder or more or faster or in some clever way, then they'll come around to it. And just like you were describing, I mean, a salesman doesn't make a sale by being more clever, he makes a sale again and again and again by building a relationship. And having stories that you care about, that you can tell about with passion, that passion becomes contagious and that makes somebody want to learn more from you. So I think you are exactly right. It's it's really more about having a way to uh, uh, appropriately share what you're passionate about in a way that will get people to want to ask you more questions. Yeah, so think about the most annoying salesperson you've ever been involved with and do not talk about pork the way he talks about his product. <laughs> <laughs> so so you caught my you caught my interest there. You said the the Trojan pigs of Greece. Is that a real thing? Oh man, that's uh that's one of the the hilarious stories about pigs. And it's not so much about pigs, but it is a funny one. So the Greeks, you know, imagine that they are facing um, the Persian army. They've got Alexander the Great. They've they've started to gain true prominence, but they don't have giant um, weapons. You know, maybe the guy that's riding the horse is carrying around steel weapons, but you're probably carrying around an iron sword or an iron spear, and you're going into battle with these Persians, people you've never met from far, far, far away, and you come over a hill in battle. You're prepared to fight them, And all of a sudden, you see the most gigantic animal you have ever seen before, an elephant, covered in armor, with three or four guys on top of him, shooting arrows or throwing spears. You are now going to battle with the Persians who have war elephants. And so you run in terror. You know, this this absolutely, they only have about 13 of them, but you run away. You have no idea what to do. And you can imagine that night over the campfires as you're talking about going back to battle the next day. And there's some guy that's like, uh, you know what will frighten him is if we lit some fires, right? So let, let's go take some fire over there and that'll, that'll scare him. So sure enough, the next day they go into battle 
and they take these uh, the, this fire and they start waving it around in front of the elephants. Only two problems happen now. Now the elephants become so frightened that they start stomping around and, and shaking and everything. And then once the fire gets out of control, it burns everyone. It goes forward, it goes back, left, right, everywhere. And so everybody retreats and they go back. And now imagine being back at your, your campfires that night. You're drinking some Greek wine. You're wondering, oh God, what are we going to do tomorrow? When that same old guy that says that he thinks that elephants are going to be afraid of fire, he says, the only thing that I've ever seen elephants react that way to is a squealing uh, boar, is a squealing pig. And that's when you have that great Western ingenuity, that great, uh, you know, that Greek thought that allows you to overcome obstacles. And so the next day, the Greeks dress up their pigs um, that they've been storing for food because the Greeks loved uh, eating pork. They put armor on them and they send the pigs out towards the elephants. And before you know it, the elephants are going absolutely insane because the squealing pigs have frightened them so much that they can't keep riders on them. And the Greeks go on to rout the the uh, Persians. And that story has an even funnier ending. We should probably save it for some other time. But uh, that was the birth of war pigs from the Greeks, which is a real thing. It, it actually happens. You can go back in the writings and see them. There's even sculptures of uh, war pigs going to fight the war elephants. So... Where can listeners go to hear what you have to say about elements of agriculture and sharing stories? Because you have a pretty good podcast. Yeah, I have a podcast that is not just on agriculture. It's focused on what I call up the graph ideas, which are ideas that the the rest of society isn't really talking about. And the podcast is called the Vance Crow Podcast. So I will have everything on from ranchers to people that are doing um, venture capital funds to doctors that are on all sides of different issues. And I really just try and say, what are ideas that other people have that uh, you can't hear anywhere else? That's what I want to get into. And it's not always controversial. Sometimes it is. But a lot of times it's just people that think about things very differently and it's uh, it's kind of enriching. It's it's uh, fun and exciting and fast paced, but always educational. It's a good way to educate, but be disconnected at the same time. Just sit back and learn, but relax. Yeah, exactly. I really like that. <laughs> so, I mean, thank you so much for joining us on the Popular Pig Podcast. It's been a real pleasure to have you share these stories and your advice and experiences with the audience. And just want to say thank you. Well, Matt, you were a very interesting person to build a relationship with. You came right up to me and wanted to chat. You asked questions at the uh, Congress. And actually, that would probably be my biggest plug. If you are at one of these pork congresses, being the person that raises their hand and asks questions like Matt allows you to build relationships so that, you know, a month later, you and I are sitting here talking. I think that uh, pig farmers kind of uh, can be a little bit shy if they're not doing the casino night or something like that. And a great way to, to uh, engage people is to ask questions at these things. So I hope uh, people follow your example and raise their hand and, and uh, chat it up with the people on the stage. Well, thank you, Vance. And yeah, that casino night, that was that was something. So if you haven't ever been to the Oklahoma Port, Conference, Port Congress, Give it a shot. They got a casino night. It's a ton of fun. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Popular Pig. We aspire to learn and grow together through the experience and wisdom shared by our esteemed guests. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues within the swine industry. 
For more information, please go to popularpig.com to receive updates when new episodes are available. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com.